Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm thrilled to be joined by Wade Sutton. Wade is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services office and the former Deputy International Tax Counsel at the Treasury Department. Wade, welcome to the podcast, and it's great to finally have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug. So, Wade, before we dive into the technical material, and I will warn our listeners, and particularly my mom, who is not a tax professional, Wade, but somehow enjoys listening to these podcasts, that this is some dense material we're going to get into. But before then, I wanted to ask you about your time here in St. Louis, where you attended Washington University as an undergraduate, which is just a few blocks south of of where we're recording this. What did you enjoy most about the city of St. Louis when you lived here? And uh, what did you miss? What do you miss? Yeah, that's right. Go Bears. Uh, For me, being close to my friends in the loop, that was our neighborhood. That's what I loved. I actually did not get out and see the city that much outside of I don't know, a square mile of okay. St. Louis. It was actually afterwards where people started getting jobs and they moved elsewhere. Then I learned about other places. But for me, it's like Blueberry Hill, the restaurant owned by Chuck Berry. Oh, yeah. That little corner of St. Louis is is my home. Yeah, and that's where Chuck Berry used to perform until the, the day that he died. And in fact, the owner of that, it's not actually Chuck Berry, it's actually one of our neighbors. And so so this we're, we're within the one square mile that you were familiar yeah, with. Right. So. Yeah, so welcome back, and we really miss Chuck Berry. And the Loop is a, is an area off of Delmore Avenue that's just two blocks from here with a lot of great restaurants. And so for those that come to visit to St. Louis, uh, it's a great spot. Well, it's glad to have you back. All right, so let's dive into the final foreign tax credit regulations, which were issued as a late Christmas gift on December 28th of 2021. Can you just provide us a little bit of context and background on these regulations before we unpack some of the specifics? Sure. So these regulations are part of a series. It's the third package, actually, since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And uh, they were proposed in September of 2020. And they introduce, we're going to talk a lot about this on this podcast, some really major changes, Mm -hmm. particularly around the definition of what's a creditable foreign tax. Um, So they are final. Um, They are effective prospectively in certain instances, but there are some pieces that are already effective. And so if you're, you know, doing provision, mm-hmm. working on your tax return, you need to take these into account already. All right. And, and there was also a, a, a several pieces that were not finalized, right? So the election to capitalize R&E, allocation of interest for foreign banking branches, for example, <laughs> definition of, F, of financial service entities and income. So it's like we're still talking about the TCJA. So there still may be some more guidance forthcoming. Perhaps, yeah. Really, I have no visibility into that at this point. But but I think if you think about the 86 Act, right, there were regulations that we were finalizing in the last four years for the 86 Act. So I think the TCJA process, it could be long. We're not done yet. If we get Build Back Better, I don't, who knows, um, you know, that's going to add more to the process. Absolutely. So I don't want to bury the lead here, and you had already highlighted it, but the creditability is certainly the highlight or low light, depending on your perspective with with, uh, respect to these regulations. 
What what changed there? And then we'll kind of go through some of the the specifics. Yeah, this is a big change, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think at a high level, before we get too far into the details, what's going on here is that um, two things. One is instead of the old predominant character test that you'd use to evaluate whether or not a tax was an income tax in the U.S. sense, you now have some very formal rules. And if you do not uh, satisfy those rules, then the tax is it's all or nothing, right? The, the separate levy, the tax is either fully non-creditable for everyone or not, right? And so I think um, that's one change. And then the big change that's getting, I think, the most press and attention is this new attribution requirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, people refer to it as the jurisdictional nexus requirement. That's what it was called in the proposed rules. Mm-hmm. And what it basically says, I'm going to paraphrase, is that if your foreign tax base doesn't look a lot like the U.S. tax base, it's not creditable, right? It's sort of premised on this view that for the last hundred years, we've kind of had consensus about how international tax is supposed to work. Some jurisdictions started changing their rules aggressively to go after U.S. profits of, or actually profits of U.S. multinationals. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the government pushing back and saying, no, we, we think that's so far outside of the consensus that we don't even think that's an income tax. Right. So let's let's unpack some of those. So... Um, <clears throat> And, and I, I want to note, as you had mentioned, that these are some very old rules that have been around. And I think about my experiences teach learning about the foreign tax credit and then teaching it uh, both within PwC and then in some of the experiences that I've had in universities. I mean, these are just well-grounded principles that, we, that have been around for decades. And there are some really significant changes to this. So why don't we start with the definition of an income tax? And so what has, what has changed with respect to, to actually what is defined as an income tax? Sure. So, so I guess the first part is you have to figure out um, what's called a separate levy, mm-hmm. right? Which, which is basically the sort of tax that you would analyze for whether or not the binary question is that creditable or not. And that's been redefined, right? So that you have separate levies uh, with respect to non-residents who are subject to a foreign tax versus residents. You might have a separate levy if you have you know, a contractual agreement with a foreign jurisdiction for how you're taxed. Each of those gets analyzed separately under these rules. And then there are a number of tests that you have to satisfy in order to meet creditability under Section 901. If you fail that, you might have a second shot under the creditability analysis under Section 903. There are also some major changes there. Um, So getting into some of the details, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The big changes on the 901 foreign tax credit definition or foreign income tax definition uh, we're around the net gain requirement, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the most significant changes were two, right? The cost recovery requirement, which is basically saying that if the foreign tax base doesn't take into account these types of costs, like interest would be a classic mm-hmm. example, it's not an income tax and it's not creditable. Um, so just quickly an example of that. If you talk to any economist, right, particularly the, I don't know, conservative ones at like AEI, right, they would say that, a more efficient tax system would be you get full expensing and you disallow interest deductions, mm-hmm. right? Economically very similar. Any jurisdiction that now adopts that sort of approach, those taxes are not creditable, mm-hmm. right? So that's major. I actually think there are several taxes we've already encountered where that's an issue. Right. Uh, the other big change in the net gain requirement is what was in the proposed regs referred to as the jurisdictional nexus requirement. It's now called the attribution requirement. But it basically says um, two requirements. If the tax is on a resident, right, 
you have to follow arm's length principles in allocating income to the resident for purposes of the tax rules. On non-residents, it's a question of more or less, do the foreign sourcing rules look like the U.S. sourcing rules? And in certain cases, like royalties, they not only have to look like, they have to be based on the same standards as U.S. law. So for example, and this is a big issue coming up with a lot of clients, a lot of jurisdictions impose withholding taxes on royalties based on residence, Mm -hmm. right? In the U.S., we do that based on place of use of the IP. That difference is per se disqualifying, right? And th- that's a major change. Mm-hmm. I think when you add all all of the changes, substantial impact on our clients, as we're noticing so far, a number of taxes that uh, people thought were creditable will not be going forward. And I guess a word quickly on effective dates, mm-hmm. right? Effective for years beginning after 2021. So for certain fiscal year taxpayers, they're not dealing with this just yet. But mm-hmm. for calendar year taxpayers, they are effect- these rules are effective for torn- foreign taxes that accrue this year. And to your point on uh, provision pieces, so obviously without with the exception of this new change to the jurisdictional nexus and creditability, companies obviously need to think about some of the rules, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But as they're starting to think about first quarter estimates, um, for, for the next year for those calendar year companies could be some really specific change or some really big changes. And what I wanted to talk about is just some actual specific taxes that, that, that we've seen a lot. And I'm going to wait to talk about BEPS 2.0 and Pillar 2, where we had Calum on the podcast last time, because okay. I know that's been a big question that has been on a lot of people's minds. But what about digital service taxes? Maybe I'll just kind of walk through yeah. and, 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 and give you some credit or give you some, some questions on credits. What about digital service taxes? So that, that one's easy, right? Because those were the number one target for right. these re- rules. Um, you know, like digital services taxes are imposed based on where customers are, right? And that's specifically called out in the rules that you cannot base source or jurisdiction to tax based on the location of customers or users. Um, And you're dealing with a situation most often where there's no physical presence of the companies that that are being subject to these digital services taxes. And again, um, one of the requirements for non-resident taxation or one of the ways that you can have credible taxes, activities in country, and in most cases, you would clearly fail that with a digital services tax. And then, you know, finally, uh, cost recovery, right? Most digital services taxes today are based Mm -hmm. on a gross basis, right? So there are a number of ways that these were addressed in the regulations. And I think it's just a classic example of the type of tax that Treasury didn't think would be uh, credible. I think there were some arguments under the prior regulations that they may have been. Mm -hmm. um, And and I think when the government got wind of that, um, you know, obviously that was shut down. And I think you mentioned the OECD. Mm -hmm. That puts some pressure on the OECD negotiations, right? Sure. Because I think it's very clear, stated in the preamble, if there's an agreement on Pillar 1, which I kind of think of as the sanctioned version of DSTs, Mm -hmm. those will be creditable and the regulations will have to change. So now I think by virtue of the change in these regulations, a lot of U.S. multinationals have big stakes in the outcome of the OECD negotiations under Pillar 1. For sure. And and you can understand the the government's view, right? The U.S. FISC, the responsibility that the Treasury has to the U.S. FISC to avoid having the U.S. FISC effectively fund these types of, of DSTs, right, through creditability. Now, 
you know, I think a lot of us will remind people that, well, you only get 80% of that of that credit, but still uh, you can kind of understand from a policy perspective kind of why they're doing this. But I think the important point for our listeners is this means double tax, right? There is just a, a lot of things to consider and, you know, the effective rates, with I, which I think many of us just viewed well with all the changes with Pillar 2, that everybody's going to be paying a minimum of a 15% tax. That may be undershooting it given, you know, particularly DSTs. And then um, again, I'm going to postpone talking about some of the Pillar 2 specifics, but that could be a big number. All right. Another one of the examples, withholding tax on services. And you already mentioned kind of how these rules may, may, uh, work on from a sourcing perspective. But but tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think uh, the rules are very clear here as well, that the foreign law needs to impose the, the withholding tax on the service based on the location of the performance of the services. And so I think where this is coming up, and, and I, I don't think there's necessarily a clear answer but imagine that you provide services through server access, right? Mm-hmm. And that those uh, payments for server access, which are services uh, more often than not, are subject to withholding tax. You have this esoteric question of, well, where are the services performed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there are clear rules on that. People take plenty of positions. But I do think it's most often the case that whatever the answer is under U.S. law, that's not the basis on which foreign mm-hmm. uh, uh jurisdictions are imposing the withholding tax. So that raises an issue under these new rules. All right. The next one, non-resident capital gains tax. And this is something kind of near and dear to my heart. I've spent a lot of time, particularly focused on the non-resident capital gains tax that China imposes, for example, on indirect stock transfers. And so um, I, I'll, I'll remind listeners that this non-resident capital gains tax can be a direct non-resident capital gains tax. So in other words, a jurisdiction imposing the sale or imposing tax on the sale of stock by that jurisdiction but it can be, or you know, the the sell the targets jurisdiction. But it can also apply indirect. In the example, China, and there are a number of others, Chile, et cetera, that impose an indirect stock transfer. So even if it's not the direct shareholder, it can be an indirect shareholder. Are those going to be creditable? Yeah. So without trying to answer your question, <laughs> no, they're in doubt, right? Yeah. And the reason is there's a narrow exception to the physical presence test, right? Uh, where or the, or the activities wrong of the creditability analysis uh, that says, you know, sales of real estate, right, or business assets, that's clearly uh, okay in terms of foreign taxing jurisdiction. And there is also a rule in the proposed rule that allowed you to uh, credit taxes that were imposed on the sale of entities that owned those sorts of assets, right? Uh, in the case of real estate, the regime had to more or less look like our FERPTA, Foreign Investment Real Property Tax Act. In the case of business assets, right, it just had to be based on the physical presence mm-hmm. due to business assets. That rule changed in the final, and it now only applies if you sell a partnership interest. And there's a really strict linkage. Uh, they say you basically it needs to look like our um, 864 rules mm-hmm. for selling partnerships that are engaged in ECI. And so I think a lot of people, particularly with your Chinese example, it's not a FERP to tax. It's based on taxable residents based on activities in China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that thing is not a partnership, you might have an issue. Right. Certainly something to think about Mm -hmm. as as companies are pricing, whether it's dispositions or acquisitions. And I remind folks that if my memory serves me correctly, that tax is actually levied on the buyer, not not the seller. Um, Next one, which is very important, particularly for companies, pharma and life sciences, is the PR the Puerto Rican excise tax. Yep. And that was something that was specifically addressed in these regulations. 
It is, right. So so just as background, the, the Puerto Rican excise tax, in a nutshell, right, charges tax for purchases from a Puerto Rican entity of things like inventory into the U.S. And the Treasury Department back in 2011 issued a notice that said, this is a novel tax. We're not sure if it's creditable, but we're not going to challenge that um, while we're studying the issue. Well, they spent a long time studying the issue. And, you know, to be fair, I think there was some political... Um, it, noise in the system as well, too, because we all know Puerto Rico, it's got some issues. They've had humanitarian issues right. with the earth, you know, all, all of the natural disasters and budgetary issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, coming out and saying that their tax is not credible might be kicking them while they're down, right? Anyway, the, the long and short of it is those taxes will no longer be creditable, but we're giving them a grace period. And I think it's a year. And the grace period, I think, is a recognition of we there's some reliance interest here right taxpayers have relied on the notice they've made investments based on that understanding and i think what's going to happen we'll we'll have to see is that puerto rico is going to have to adjust Uh, this excise tax was a very significant portion of their budget sure and they're going to figure out have to figure out how to replace it right all right the, the last two that i wanted to mention seem to be very much kind of focused on BEPS 2.0. So as we think about Pillar 1 and, and, and Pillar 2, and they put in the context of digital permanent establishment assertions. So mm-hmm. what, what is that and, and, and how do the credibility works for when you have a digital PE? Right. So, so the concept of a digital PE is that even though you don't, and, and by the way, this, this was a BEPS 1.0 yeah. working party item that right. was just never resolved uh, because the Treasury at that point in time was pretty adamant that, you know, the arm's length standard and physical presence PE standards is the consensus and why are we doing that? Uh, The assertion, uh, you know, not to name too many countries, but you might see this in a country like India, right? Mm -hmm. That is saying that users create value, like the, I think the economics theory would be like network value and that that value belongs to India and therefore creates a presence to tax, right? So the the concept here in the 901 regulations is that, no, they're not actual activities Mm -hmm. in that jurisdiction. That's not a valid basis tax, it's not an income tax in the U.S. since, and it's not creditable, right? And then the last one where, where they talk about the arm's length principle, and this seems to be very much alluding to, to, to pillar one, which we already talked about. Yeah, so, so this more applies to taxes on residents, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the concept is if, if I'm subject to tax on all my income that's allocated to jurisdiction, then the, my profits need to be determined under an arm's length method. And certainly with respect to, I don't know, taxes under pillar one, the idea is that, you know, let's say I'm a company in France and I am buying digital services from Ireland, right? It, and let's just hypothesize it's low tax. Mm-hmm. Um, if under the arm's length standard, none of those profits would be allocable to me, right? Then any taxes imposed by France would not be on a resident, would not be under the arm's length standard and creditable, right? So that's basically the concept there. Yeah, and I mean, all each of those examples is something that is very relevant for a number of U.S. multinationals, right, across a number of different industries. So a, a lot to think about. So let's move to um, how does this fit within the larger BEPS 2.0? And I do not, I will encourage <laughs> listeners to go back and listen to the podcast that we did last week with Callum, where we talked about Pillar 2 in detail. 
Um, but one of the important concepts that, that I got from that discussion was this new concept, particularly of the undertax payment rule that actually doesn't require a payment. Um, and it would potentially allow one country to effectively assess income from another low tax country and, and allow that you know, country to be able to, to tax it, that originating country to tax it with really no connection at all. Um, so talk a little bit, I mean, that would seem to be squarely, you know, outside the creditability, the new attribution requirement. But yeah. talk a little bit about, about the context of Pillar 2, where we're heading, and, and then these, these regulations. Yeah, sure. So I guess first, a lot of people object to the term BEPS 2.0 on the theory that there's no profit shifting involved here. This, this is really a political debate about who gets to tax the profits that are already being taxed somewhere, Right. Um, but and, and, and like uh, Will Morris, who has been on this podcast a number of times, firmly believes <laughs> believes in that as well. I am not giving up on the BEPS 2.0 moniker. Right. Just it is catchy. <laughs> your your point is very well taken, and I absolutely uh, I agree with the principle. But you're right, BEPS 2.0 just makes it a lot easier to talk about. Although I do think the conversations <laughs> people are now referring to Pillar One and Pillar Two, but I'm not letting go of the, the BEPS okay. 2.0 right. moniker. So yeah, let's talk about Pillar Two, and and in particularly the under tax payment rule. And and we got model rules very recently that explain how this is supposed to work. I think we all still have many questions about this. Uh, but one thing that's really clear is that if you have undertaxed payments, right, so there would be a top-up liability, and those are not subject to tax under an income inclusion regime, then the way the rule works is, is that any other country who's basically in that related structure group of entities who's adopted Pillar 2, gets to tax the profits. There's an allocation key, you know, based on employees and tangible assets. But, you know, more or less, the pie gets divided. Mm-hmm. And it's not divided on payments. It's, it's you know, you, you can have no actual interaction with right. the undertaxed entity and still the tax charge applies. And the, the one way I think you could, like, conceptualize what the rule is, it's like a reverse CFC regime, mm-hmm. right, where, you know, you, Instead of ownership, it's just relatedness that triggers mm-hmm. the, the inclusion. And then, you know, what happens? You disallow deductions or, you know, maybe you impute income. But now let's talk about how that filters through the 901 regulations, mm-hmm. right? Well, to the extent you view that as a tax on a resident, the person who's actually cutting a check to the government, it has nothing to do with the arm's length standard, right? It, it, those taxes are not being posed by reference to any interaction payments or so forth, with low tax entity. Let's say you view it as a tax on the low tax entity, which would be a non-resident of the jurisdiction imposing the UTPR. Same issues that we talked about with some of these other taxes. No physical presence, right. no sourcing rule based on any activities in country. It, it seems to me, you know, just to cut to the chase, there's an issue if mm-hmm. Pillar 2 is adopted. But I think Treasury has signaled this when they said, we'll revisit these rules when and if we get agreement under Pillars 1 and 2, right? Because mm-hmm. I think all of these rules will need to be revisited. Yeah, and I think the challenge for taxpayers, and particularly given as frothy as the deal market is, and some of the questions that, that I've already been fielding is, well, how, how do we try to, from a modeling perspective, as we're looking at a prospective tax rate, right? You know, how can we, you know, how do we be conservative, right? But because the generally in these deal models, we're trying to be very conservative. Again, I think the conventional wisdom has been, well, 
given where everything is going with BEPS 2.0 and and with Guilty, that, well, you're going to be paying at least 15% tax. And so just throw 15% in there. And I feel like, you know, given the potential changes on the horizon with Pillar 2 and then what we had talked about with DSTs and the others, that that's probably not a, a good assumption. But I think it's very challenging to, to really try to understand exactly what that number might look like, depending on the, the particular taxpayer's facts. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this feels, you know, like a really big change from the proposed regulations, particularly from the original um, jurisdictional nexus requirement. And uh, along the lines of nomenclature, I'm a little irritated that they moved to this new attribution principle because I always felt like attribution from a tax perspective should be related to determining ownership, right. not determining credibility. But, you know, that's just my, my issue with the name. But they moved from jurisdictional nexus to attribution. How big of a and, and material of a change is that from what was proposed to now what is finalized in your view? Yeah, I think it's a huge, huge change. I mean, there there was an earlier attempt back in 1980 in the proposed regulations to do something similar. That never went forward. It was very controversial. But, you know, in addition to attribution, um, which, you know, some of the criticism of these regulations has said um, – that is governed by 904. That's what that's all about. Congress knows what it's doing back when they amended the foreign tax credit 100 years ago. Um, like, like you're, you're adding on something that Congress has already thought about and policed. And that's one criticism of the big change. But I think the other thing that people are suggesting is you've got 100 years of you know understanding of what is an income tax. It's always been based on sort of a principles, substance over form-based notion, cases like PPL, right, mm-hmm. where they disregard the foreign labels. They don't right. care what you call the tax. They, uh, they care what is its character. And I think that's all gone. These new rules are heavily dependent on the names that a foreign jurisdiction puts mm-hmm. on tax, right? You can call something a, a service or you can call it a royalty. You get different answers potentially, right? Yeah, it's an interesting point on PPL. That was the windfall profits tax that the U.K., had, uh, had you know levied on a U.S. multinational PPL, and you're right. What the court ended up doing was they kind of disregarded the fact that this was really not a, a true profit, a windfall profits tax, and then really looked to the underlying mechanics. And your point now, we've kind of taken some of that away, where we now just look more superficially at at, at what the tax is called. Right. All right. You had uh, um, all you had talked about because I want to revisit again in lieu of taxes and mm-hmm. section nine oh three. Remind our listeners first what is an in lieu of tax because I remember this was always a challenge as I was learning these rules many decades ago. At this point, as hard as that is, it feels to believe. But what is an in lieu of tax, and then and and how have those how have those rules been been changed? Sure. So, so more or less, an in lieu of tax is a tax that a foreign jurisdiction imposes that just doesn't meet the literal requirements qualify as a section 901 tax maybe for example because it doesn't have items in the tax base that you'd need to qualify as a net income tax but the idea is it's a substitute for imposing an income tax and you know there are a number of examples of this where you know certain extractive industries might have their own special tax regime that's different from the income tax that everyone else pays right mm-hmm. But uh, the other one withholding taxes, right? Yes, and, right. And, and obviously, from a U.S. perspective, we we do the same thing from a U.S. perspective, right? We have our FEDAP regime, and so dividends, interest, rents, and royalties, which can be subject to withholding tax. Yeah, and exactly the reason that's not an income tax is you can't claim any deductions, right, right. against the gross income. It's a gross basis tax. Um, so a lot of major changes here, but but I think 
One is the substitution requirement. You, you know, usually you just had to prove that this was a tax imposed in lieu of, you know, the income tax that otherwise would have applied. Now you have to actually demonstrate the close connection between that choice, right? And you can demonstrate that by showing that specific group of taxpayers were exempted fully from the income tax, uh, so they can't be subject to it, and instead were subjected to the alternative tax. And, and you might need to prove that by looking to legislative history in the foreign jurisdiction or, you know, evidence that they were enacted at the same time. Um, that might be a difficult standard for a lot of taxpayers mm -hmm. to meet, right? So a, a lot of things to, to think about from a creditability perspective. And what I want to spend the duration of the time kind of moving away from credibility. And mm -hmm. again, I can't say enough of just how important and big these potentially changes are for, for, for taxpayers. Um, but another of other, I think, important things to note, we're not going to cover, obviously, all the various changes, but did want to highlight a few that were notable to me. Um, so let's move to allocation and apportionment of, of taxes. And these can be mind-numbingly complex, yeah. but well, let's see how you can kind of summarize some of these changes. And a lot of them involve whether you've got disregarded payments and there are hybrid type payments, but tell us a little bit about how these law, about how these rules have changed. Yeah, so it's funny, you warned your viewers about complexity, but I'm not even gonna go into the weeds on this one. Perfect. It, these, we basically, the, the short version is, we got new rules for what is already a very detailed and complex set of rules, right? Um, and more or less, what we're dealing with, we got new rules to characterize taxes imposed on transactions involving stock or partnership interest. Mm -hmm. um, there's this new rule or clarifying how disregarded payments are accounted for. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there's another rule dealing with hybrid instruments. That's actually brand new. It was not described in the proposed regulations. And you know, again, without getting into the details, I think it's fair to say that form really matters with these rules. In other words, situations that economically are very similar, taxes get allocated differently. And so I think it is incumbent on all of us, particularly as advisors, to really know the ins and outs of these rules because um, that blocking and tackling can drive very different answers. And they're important rules because they kind of form the backbone of a number of other sections, right? Like mm -hmm. your 904 limitation, deemed paid credits under 960, et cetera. Yeah, and to remind listeners that really this is fundament fundamentally about what basket do these various credits end up in. And I think what we've seen is given the fact that there's no, at least today, right, without Build Back Better, there's no foreign tax credit carry forward in the guilty basket. And so there are a number of taxpayers that are excess credit in the guilty basket and those credits just fall fall off. If instead of being in the guilty basket, they're in the general basket, then there is the, the carry forward available for those general basket. And so it can have a very meaningful difference for taxpayers, and particularly as they think about setting up deferred tax assets to the extent that they can use that carry forward versus just if they're in the guilty and your excess guilty credit, they just fall off. Yep. So the next thing I wanted to highlight is the denial of foreign tax credits under 245 Cap A. So, so maybe remind listeners what is 245 Cap A, yeah. um, which is our dividends received deduction provision, um, and then how, how, how do these rules kind of change any distributions associated with 245 Cap A? Sure, so most of the world taxes foreign subsidiaries using participation regimes, right, where you're not subject to tax on dividends or dispositions. Some of us, like the United States or Ireland, we use a full inclusion system, more or less, in grant credits, mm -hmm. except 
after TCJ, we just sort of have this weird mutant where right. we have a little bit of participation, a little bit of worldwide taxation. Uh, the, basically, the participation exemption is 245 cap A. It just gives you 100% deduction for certain types of dividends. It's not actually that robust because it gets carved back quite a bit by guilty, mm -hmm. right? Guilty uh, taxes and number of profits and whatever's left after you've gone through guilty and subpart F eligible for 245 cap A. But, really the untaxed D&P, right? That, that exactly. That's left over. Yep. And and so, you know, the, the thought behind disallowing credits is you don't need to grant relief from double taxation if you've already excluded the income from the tax base. That's a simple rule where you just have a dividend, it's subject to foreign withholding tax, and it gets a DRD, right? Everyone knows how to apply that. But there's a lot of complexity in these rules dealing with situations, you know, frankly, I think to prevent planning and end-arounding the basic statutory rule. Uh, you know, for situations where the DRD arises before the taxes or vice versa. And they hook into the 861-20 rules we just talked mm -hmm. about for allocating and apportioning taxes. Basically, if those taxes get allocated to certain types of income, uh, then they're disallowed. Yeah, and I think the, the my, my takeaway is is that, you know, to the extent that you had, let's say, a 1248 event, and so that you've you've created, you know, a, a taxation as a result of a disposition, then there are special rules that apply to your point when that that PTAP effectively ar arose prior to the actual distribution, and then there are special rules when it applies on the actual distribution as as well as after. So very mechanical, important to to understand. You know, ultimately, the credibility associated with holding taxes or related taxes or even income taxes that are associated with those types of payments. And I should throw in deductions, too, right? So can't even deduct these taxes. Right. Yeah. Great, great point. Um, all right. So the next place that I wanted to move to was the timing for, for claiming a, a foreign tax credit. And so this is something that I've spent a lot of time on in my career thinking about. And, you know, you always like to be able to look in the rearview mirror. Um, particularly for companies that maybe weren't able to have the appropriate amount of foreign tax credit limitation or maybe had an overall foreign loss, couldn't take credits and then wanted to deduct. And then maybe there's been some event that potentially changed that and, and going back. And that's always been, in my view, kind of blocking and tackling planning opportunities for taxpayers as their particular uh, overall tax positions and general limitation and foreign tax credit limitations positions change. But talk a little bit about the timing. Yeah, so there, there are a lot of um, rules now that I would characterize as transition provisions, right, that, that explain to taxpayers how they can elect to transfer from using the cash basis versus accrual for foreign taxes or transitioning from deduction credit or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of guardrails put around how you can make that choice. And I, I think it's fair to say most of the guardrails deal with concerns about the statute of limitations mm -hmm. and the inability of the government may, maybe to claw back a windfall from your change in choice. The other, uh, I, I think this is the one that's going to be really important for taxpayers, though, is the ability to claim a provisional tax credit, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, generally where you have a tax dispute with a foreign government, the taxes have not yet accrued until all events have occurred to fix liability. So these are for contested taxes yeah, is what you're talking about. right. Yep. So, right, if I'm in court fighting with the government of, I don't know, Mexico about whether or not I owe tax, um, until, until I have a judgment or a settlement, right, the general rule is we've not had an accrual. However, the new rule says, okay, fine, if you agree to keep the statute running, statute of limitations, and you pay the tax and you report to us every year how the proceedings are going, you can claim an early tax 
as if it had accrued. And I think that's going to be an important uh, tool for a lot of people who these tax disputes can run years. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, years and years. Um, I mean, the tax disputes can have, have last years and years here in the United States that's true. That's as, true. <laughs> as well, to remind everybody. Okay, the, the last one I wanted to, to highlight were the FDII provisions. I think yeah. we may have gotten a little less than we, what we may have expected um, as, insofar as guidance associated with FDII, but maybe talk about at least a couple of the things that were mentioned. Yeah, the, it, minor changes, mm-hmm. so not, not headlines, but basically one is, there are rules for determining foreign oil and gas extraction income, and basically for FDII purposes, you have to use the same methods and allocations uh, methods that you would use for determining your DOGI, domestic oil and gas extraction income. Um, the other one, and this is maybe a bit more material, is clarifying what electronically supplied services are, mm-hmm. right? And there was a little bit of confusion here because I, I think the proposed rule had said that they have to be uh, – uh, basically asynchronous and, um, you know, basically th- th- what they had in mind was servers, right, where you mm-hmm. can you know, have automated services on demand free of access. I don't think what they wanted to catch is things like the Khan Academy, where a person is teaching you using their judgment and skill, and you can access that whenever you want. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've covered the, the the material provisions, at least that I wanted to to highlight. What what are some key takeaways in your view for 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 taxpayers, and how should they be thinking about these rules? What should they be thinking about here, kind of in the short, mid, and longer term? Sure. So I, I think step one is assess right um, inventory where you have creditability problems. That's going to be I think the number mm-hmm. one thing. Uh, step two then is okay. Well, can I do anything about this? Mm-hmm. And it, again, I kind of emphasize these are form-driven rules, and so maybe you're paying withholding taxes on X type of uh, of payments, but if you change your supply chain, it would be Y type, and that's a different analysis. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's fair to think about restructuring your operations to drive a different creditability analysis. And then, you know, third is get engaged on, on the, particularly on the OECD process, because I think. There's so much pressure due to the lack or, or the loss of all these foreign tax credits on U.S. multinationals that it, I think it's going to force an outcome. Right? And that's either successful implementation on the OECD front, including here in the United States, or it's going to be regulatory changes. Because I just think where we are now uh, is not stable right? Mm-hmm. politically. For sure. Um, the, the one thing that I would add to that is that it's going to be interesting to me to see how foreign governments react to some of these law changes, because I think there are decades of precedents of foreign governments adjusting their rules, their taxation rules to conform to creditability in the U.S. And it will be interesting to me to see if certain governments like try to proactively change their rules to more shoehorn into to these. And, and a great example of that is the windfall profits tax with, with PPL. And there was evidence that the UK government had sought counsel, I believe, to actually try to make sure that that thing was, was creditable. And so it'll be interesting to see if, if foreign governments kind of take a similar approach, with, particularly like with the, the non-deductibility of interest and, and sort of some of those, those right. new changes to the base rules. Um, and uh, potentially engaging with some of those non-U.S. Uh, government officials could be important as well. Yeah, it, it is interesting, by the way, that these changes put primacy on income tax, right? You might raise a lot of revenue with VAT, 
you're going to get a better answer now if you're raising income through corporate income tax, right? Great point. Absolutely. Well, Wade, fascinating discussion. Great to have you on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Wade Sutton, an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Service. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.